0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode, we've got a really special guest, Tyler Britton, who's going to be talking today about FAIR methodology and how he's embedded in his organization, Dropbox. Hi, Tyler. Can you introduce yourself and let listeners know a little bit about the company that you work for? Yep. So I'm Tyler Britton. I work for
1: Dropbox. My technical title is cybersecurity quant risk manager, something to that effect. I've been at Dropbox for about a little over a year. Fantastic.
0: So before we go further, one of the questions we would like to ask is like, what do you get up to outside of work? Tell the listeners a little bit about your other interests.
1: So I live in a little uh, mountain ski resort town. We've got a big lake. So I'm pretty much an outdoor junkie. Spend my time camping, skiing, hiking, playing chess. Got two little boys that i also spend most of my spare time with, and kind of a bookworm as well. Uh, The fun fact I like to tell people about myself is that I have a flip phone. I've had one for years. It's one of those rugged flip phones you can drop in the water, use it as a defense weapon, whatnot. I also spend time avoiding
0: text messages and calls as well. (laughs) Okay. Fantastic. And yeah, I remember, I remember my, I had a, for a while, one of the old Nokia ones that was like, literally like one of the workman ones, like they were literally like bomb proof. <laughs> oh yeah. You think about now, like your phones before, like you drop an iPhone or my Google phone broken, you know, oh, a couple hundred dollars to go and replace the screen. So like those phones like lasted three or four years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. My
1: last one got left outside in the rain and snow for a month and Still worked fine. Just dropped it in a
0: bag of rice and it was great. (laughs) Easier days. So can you let us a little bit know about what is your current role and how you got into it? So what's your route been into cybersecurity or information security? Pretty odd one, really. I went to school, um,
1: university and studied English literature, got into a, a special cohort that sort of preps you for doing graduate work. And I was going to be a professor. I'm glad I took that, gotten that cohort because I realized I did not want to be in academia, traveled around, lived in Korea, a little bush, Alaska village for a while, mostly doing teaching, teaching English, teaching math, teaching GED course. And whatnot, and eventually I ended up getting a technical writing position at a, a risk software as a service company that did risk for aviation safety, and uh, started doing some programming there. And from there, it just it kind of worked out that I worked my way into the cybersecurity space, and and really liked it. And eventually, I got a job uh, learning how to do risk quantification at a company called Lens, and after that, moved on to Dropbox. So definitely not a traditional route, and started out as doing English English lit.
0: You know what, we had a guest recently on Katie Arrington. She was the ex CISO uh the Department of Defense. And again, she's a non-technical role. Like she I think she started off as an entrepreneur and did a few other things, but she was like, Yeah, never a technical role. I mean, the amount of people now that come into this, if you've got a willingness to learn, I think, and you've got the right skill sets, I think you can adapt to it. I think saying a technical experience is needed is well, as long as you're willing to put the time into learning, I think it doesn't really matter these days.
1: I agree completely. Some of the smartest people I've met in this space, some didn't even graduate high school, or didn't certainly didn't go to college. It's you can pick it up in your spare time. I, I agree. Like a degree is
0: helpful because sure. it shows a level of like learning. If you think about like what you did in your degree and what you do now, I probably use none of it. Well, I'm almost certain I use none of it really on a day to day basis. Gets you your first job right. I think that's kind of, or at least it did ten years ago.
1: You go to school to get an education, not to get a job. So you know, hopefully you yeah. can take things away from school. And my English has been very valuable in terms of just communicating with people,
0: you know. So a little bit more about Dropbox. So what's kind of the say uh, size and stage of the information security program? Like kind of how many people are in the team?
1: So I'll speak as much to it as I can. Uh, We have a security and abuse or security and trust team that are coupled together. And I'd say probably in the range of around 100, 100 folks and gone through a lot of changes. The maturity of our information security program is so much better than it historically was. And good culture. The quant risk program, again, is fairly new. I'm in charge of building it and then at some point turning it into something that's manageable. And it's just currently being built out as we speak.
0: In terms of Dropbox, I mean, a lot of people know, but like, what's the size of Dropbox? Where are you all based? Are you all remote or?
1: Yeah. So Dropbox is called uh, Virtual First. So we have satellite offices, but everybody works from home. You have the option of going into the satellite offices. There's one in Seattle and Austin and Dublin and San Francisco. But yeah, everyone's everyone's remote. I think there's you know over 3000 employees or something like that. And um yeah, they during COVID everything transitioned from being in person to being virtual first. Fantastic! So you get to go to Dublin. Do you? Is that could that be your... <laughs> I'm I'm ready for it. Yes,
0: <laughs> very ready for it. Okay. So uh, a little bit more about your role. It's the first time I've seen probably someone with the cyber risk quantification in their job title. So can you tell me a little bit about who you report to? What are the responsibilities of your role?
1: Uh, so I report to our head of security, CISO, effectively the same thing. So I'm on his leadership team. And as far as what risk quantification looks like day to day, I'd say there's really two halves, Jekyll and Hyde. That's That's probably a terrible metaphor, but half of that is really trying to manage issues and problems as they come up by assigning a quantification value to them so that we can prioritize appropriately, make appropriate decisions, informed decisions. So that's half of it. And then the other half is really building tooling around understanding our risks. So that's the data gathering, that's the controls analytics side of things, that's getting the, input data to actually run analyses and then using the products that we have to do risk quantification, but where those tools don't work for our needs, building our own tooling, our own software proof of concepts, that kind of thing so that we can manage the risks and do things quickly and appropriately and not spend a week doing an analysis, but then 20 or 30 minutes doing analysis. So management and then building tooling and gathering data so that I can do analysis. That's really kind of captures the bulk of my work.
0: So I mean, not everyone will have heard of cyber risk quantification. So can you tell listeners a little bit more what cyber risk quantification is and I guess how organizations would go about using it?
1: great question at its simplest risk quantification is putting risk in dollars as a composite of the frequency that a bad thing happens multiplied by the cost when a bad thing happens and that gives us an annualized loss expectancy the analogy i always use is if your car breaks down once every 10 years there's a 10 percent chance per year your car breaks down and if it costs a thousand dollars when it breaks down ten percent times a thousand dollars is a risk of a hundred annualized dollars per year. So that's risk quantification in a nutshell. In terms of how it can be used and why it's beneficial, there's a few different things but the important ones are prioritization first and foremost. Instead of saying a risk is high, medium or low with potentially no justification for why those risk ratings are the way that they are, you're applying dollars in ways that, uh, numbers that everybody understands. And when you put a dollar figure on that actually has justification behind it, it just makes things a lot easier to prioritize. You know, there is no high, medium or low, there's no buckets. It's just, you have your top risk, your second one, your third one, and you can prioritize based off of that. So prioritization is a big one, showing value for your top risks. You may do a lot of work in a given year that reduces that top risk by, let's say, 50%. You know, you reduce the likelihood by 50%. The rating may still be quote unquote high. So instead of going to your executives or your board and saying, we reduced our risk by a lot, we reduced it from a high down to a a better version of high. It's still high, but it's better. We, you know, trust us. You can actually say, no, like we reduced our annualized loss for this top risk from 75 million down to 35 million and show why that is from an analytical level. So, prioritization, making informed decisions, uh, showing the value of your work, it makes you, it makes your team look good, and it provides the analytical rigor to defend why your results are the way that they are.
0: Do you use it in, that this is a question I just wondered, do you use it as part of like your cyber insurance? Is it something you actually look at, or is it just something you're using internally for quantifying things like, obviously, like security spend on security improvement programs, et cetera?
1: The FAIR program we're building is to use it for everything from um, exceptions management, exceptions with an E, to top risk reporting, to evaluating cyber insurance. It's a great tool to use for cyber insurance, you know, does your cyber insurance cover the percentage of loss impacts in a breach or ransomware or some other kind of event that you want it to? Uh, It's hard to tell that with qualitative, um, but with quantitative assessment, like the data's there, but we're going to use it for everything. from the, And we've already started on a number of different work streams, but from low Level things to high level things, unless there's a is not a justification or a need to put risk in terms of a quant value. Our goal is to put everything in terms of risk quant. So it's truly a risk quantification based risk program that we're building.
0: The exception thing is quite interesting, isn't it? Because that kind of like it allows you to think like when you do those small exceptions or what you consider small exceptions (laughs) quite a lot of the time, it can add up very very quickly to go. Actually, we've adding exceptions, this really important policy that we depend on a lot for our security posture. And we can say, actually, even now that increases the risk by, I don't know, three times in some cases.
1: Yeah. And I think to use exceptions as an example, it allows you to bring an internal audit function into play to you know manage. But I think the important thing is that it allows security to establish a relationship with the business that's not based on compliance, but is actually based on something that both parties can mutually agree on, which is financial risk essentially for an exception. So instead of saying you can't do that because of some compliance reason, it's more of a question, hey, you can do that, but be aware that you know the risk for this exception is X amount of dollars annualized. And it really changes the tone of the conversation for any types of problems or issues that arise where you're having to work with the business function.
0: It makes you kind of think about it a lot more, doesn't it? Because like they're very high. I mean, we've seen I've seen it so many times. Why is it very high? Because mm. the impact's high. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk me through, I know you've kind of mentioned it a couple of times, but what would you see as the, the top three benefits of implementing a quant program?
1: First, probably... The cultural change, it's not like a tangible or hard benefit, but again, the ability to go into a conversation with a business and either give strong justification for why you as a security person feel strongly that a thing needs to be a certain way and be able to show it and justify it. Or on the other hand, to be able to challenge an assumption about something being a big deal when maybe it's actually not and work with the business to make decisions so that kind of cultural change to allow security to not be the data police or the security police it's a really nice thing but yeah the other things as i mentioned the ability to prioritize effectively the ability to justify why a risk is the way that it is as you said why is that risk very high yeah because the likelihood's high or because of some arbitrary you know risk matrix box to show why it at almost any level of depth that you want to, well, because the likelihood is this, the impact this, you can go down as far as you need to. So prioritizing in that way, again, challenging assumptions. So as an example, most organizations that I've worked with would say that insider type of risks are a high or a very high or whatever the highest level is. When in fact, they're usually not because malicious insider events are actually pretty rare. The likelihood is generally pretty low and people don't like going to prison. So when insiders are doing things, it's generally not doomsday kind of scenario. And you can show that with risk quantification. It's hard to show that with qualitative risk. So prioritization, showing the value, which I already talked about, challenging assumptions, understanding your risk better, and cultural changes are all some really, really great, pretty quick wins that you can get. Even if you're not developing a full fair program, you know, if you ha- even if you have specific use cases, you still get a lot of those benefits as well.
0: I mean, I've got a bit of experience with this before because we've we've got customers who've used it. Um, what are the, some of the prerequisites? Because this was somewhere I always found, again, quite challenging, was that it'd be good to understand what you think are the prerequisites. What data do you need for this to work well? I think
1: in my experience where programs fail, it's not the reasons you might think like we don't have the right data or we don't have the people that can do this. Risk quantification, actually, is, it's not that difficult to learn. I think what you really need from a date, I guess this is a data point, is a strong use case, you know, something specific, some problem you're trying to solve. Maybe you're struggling with effectively reporting to the board, or when you start the risk presentation, you just get blank stares from your executive members or your board or, or lack of engagement. Whatever their problem is, risk quantification should start with solving a particular problem. And it's sort of like getting a, a new sports car, you know, you're used to driving, I don't know, Toyota Prius, and suddenly you get something that has a lot of horsepower behind it. But if you're driving in traffic or you if you don't know how to drive that car, it's not going to work well. And so use case is the most important thing, I think, to get started. When it comes to the the data piece, as Jack says in his book, you need less data than you think you do and you have more data than you think you do. And with FAIR, we use ranges so we can account for our uncertainty. If you don't have a lot of data to get started, it's actually okay. Your ranges might be a little wider, but you need a use case. Program will die without a use case.
0: If you were doing this, like what are the data points that you need? So if if somebody was going to start now, and then again, you don't need all of them, but what are the core data points someone would need to, to run one of these programs?
1: So having data about security incidents, is extremely helpful. How often are you having, seeing command and control type events or foothold events? How often are you seeing DDoS attacks? How often are you seeing, just some like general security incident data is really helpful. Having some understanding of, of your controls and the pros and cons, if you will, the effectiveness or the downsides of the way that you have implemented your control cluster. And then beyond that, a lot of the information actually comes from legal for your privacy teams on the impact side, as well as having any kind of good information or modeling around, if an outage were to happen, you know how do you lose money? And that's a function of how do you make money? Some organizations make money by subscription base. So if they have an outage, maybe some customers will leave, but they're not losing real-time money. Whereas an organization like Facebook, for example, they're an advertising company. So they rely, if they have an outage, they're losing advertising, like real-time money. So having an understanding of how you make money as an organization is another really important data point. So between that and and getting information from legal and privacy about the cost of a breach, those are really good places to start. Incidents, controls information, legal breach data, cost to notify, that kind of thing, and knowing how your business makes money are pretty
0: low-hanging fruit areas to get started. And is there any kind of prerequisites? So like you, you're establishing a program, what are the two or three things that you need to make sure are in place before you get going? So the use case that's, that I mentioned on the data front,
1: I think it is worth, you know, before things get started, do some data gathering, get some data library set up, gather the incident data, gather the data from legal, gather the data from the business folks about how you make money, that kind of thing. Having some of that information available already, will allow you to almost do like a plug and play or building Lego style of getting started with analysis so that you're not having to collect data while you're also doing that. Well, you won't have to collect as much data while you're actually doing an analysis. You can use the information you have and plug it in in unique ways that match the story or the situation that you're analyzing. So use case, data, and then resourcing. That's the final thing. You can't If you don't have a a person to do this function, if you don't have some kind of tooling, even if it's simple, some kind of Excel calculator to run the risk assessments, it's really, really difficult to do FAIR analysis. On the resourcing front, I'll point out that if the expectation is that a person is going to do FAIR part-time, that's really tough, right? They have their job that they already have to do. And so to expect them to suddenly spend 25 or 50% of their time Learning something entirely new that seems a little daunting because learning new things can be daunting, that they're going to do that, gather the data, establish the use case and whatnot. It's certainly possible, even probable, but it's going to just take a lot more time. So I think on the resourcing front, having at least one person who's dedicated to this or is mostly dedicated to it is really, really valuable. And if they're not, if you don't have that kind of resourcing, it's just going to take more time
0: feels like a culture and buy-in from an exec level is quite important here to so kind of like you say the use case but saying actually we believe this is valuable and why and then so you can kind of continue <laughs> to reiterate to the business this is why we're doing this this is why we're doing this because I think any of these things they've probably done very similar risk assessments for a long time, but they've been able to dictate, yeah, this is my highest risk because that's high and that's high. I guess that completely takes a lot of our way. Yeah, it's a great call out.
1: You can have great executive buy-in, for example, your your CISO really wants this, wants to have this fair Ferrari if you will, and if you don't have a use case, when that CISO leaves, if the next CISO comes in and doesn't want to do it, that program was dependent on the CISO wanting it. But if you have a really strong use case, when you have turnover, which you always do, it's a lot harder to stop doing this thing that we've depended on doing for so long, such as doing top risk reporting with FAIR. A new CISO can come in and and just because they've come in and don't necessarily want FAIR doesn't mean that that can just go away. So having a use case, you can build a process around it and make a program that's dependent on a process, not a person. So
0: it's a good call out in terms of that relationship between use case and buy-in. The other thing that's quite interesting is you mentioned about controls, so compliance. How does it work? What is the dependency on control data?
1: It can be as little or as much as you want it to. So when you're doing analysis work, the control efficacy, the overall control efficacy is one of the inputs to an analysis, or usually is. And you can go as deep down the rabbit hole as looking at the efficacy of of each control, Um, and if you have a set of controls, then calculating the efficacy for all of those controls, or it can be as simple as given these five controls in this scenario, are they generally more effective, generally less effective, somewhere in the middle, like flip a coin, or maybe it's very, very effective, but it can be as simple as that. And it requires making a hypothesis or an assumption about the strength of those controls. But making that assumption is, a, and calling it out in the analysis is a whole lot better than either not making that assumption, not thinking about it, or just hiding it in your head and not calling it out so to answer your question you can go as deep and c- down the control rabbit hole as you want or you can keep it at a high level it kind of just depends on what decision you're trying to make sometimes you need to have a lot of justification and rationale for why a risk is the way that it is and other times you just need to make a quick decision is this a five thousand dollar risk or a five million dollar risk so it kind of depends on what you're trying to do in the first place as well Does that make sense
0: Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And then one of the things that you always hear is about, we've spoken about this before, is maturity, control maturity. How does that fit into FAIR? Well, I think the way that it currently
1: fits in is quite a few new companies in this space who call themselves quant risk. And I think they sort of do some of that, but they're trying to use maturity scores to equate maturity with control efficacy. And they're really measure two entirely different things. Sometimes there's some overlap in approved maturity of a particular control. May have some benefits in its efficacy, but overall, a high maturity control doesn't mean it has a lot of efficacy in reducing risk. And so, maturity measures processes and policies around a control. Efficacy is really measuring to what effect does it do its job in preventing risk and shortening the duration to detect a, a problem, you know, reducing magnitude. That's what efficacy is. And so, They really do measure two different things. And it's not that maturity isn't beneficial. That's not what I'm trying to say. It solves its own problems, which is basically how well are you managing your controls? Efficacy solves a different problem. How much is that control doing to reduce risk? So there's a little bit of overlap in the Venn diagram, the lines touch, but I think that's pretty much it. It's unfortunate because everyone would really like to use all the maturity information that they have and just throw it into a fair assessment. Unfortunately, you
0: can't do that with a lot of integrity. Yeah, I mean, from someone who's seen quite <laughs> as well, like I have a specific view on the maturity scores a lot mm. of the time. What is a three? Like you're given these zero to five numbers, but I often kind of go, so what? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, right. I mean, the controls in place is well documented. What is that? We're going to get all our controls to a four. Okay, but what's that, to your point, what's that actually done to reduce risk? Has that What has that done to improve our, in this way, in, in this world, would be our annual loss expectancy? So I what does that look like? I think a lot of the time people equate maturity to always, like you say, reducing risk, and actually it's like, what are our critical controls? How well are they designed and how to improve them? Obviously then you look and go, well, actually, here is this one control that's critical across all our risks. If we improve that quite a lot and made it actually even more effective, and that's probably the way to look at it rather than say, feed in the maturities, but actually go, well, actually, here's our critical controls. And how do we then use FAIR to yeah. determine where we should make sure these controls are tested and understood very well?
1: Right. Maybe a good example there would be like, how many controls does you know your organization have that have the highest maturity that produce absolutely no risk?
0: <laughs> You know, I mean, it's a good question. No, good question. no, it, is. It, it also makes you think of like investment, right? Of like actually, because obviously, we cost of control is quite hard. But like, if you could actually say, well, this control adds very li- little to re- well, to reducing our risk, and we know it's fairly expensive, is that? something, because you have this arbitrary thing of key controls all the time, and I don't think it's that easy to identify what are your organization's key controls. I think with FAIR, you could actually quite use it as a mechanism to establish what are your key controls. Totally. I think at this point at Dropbox, we
1: know what our top controls are and have really, really solid justification for why that is. FAIR brings out non-intuitive insights. Most people wouldn't think of humans as a top control, but having people who can identify phishing, that's a, that could be a really
0: effective control in reducing a whole number of things. So I agree with you. Say so actually before we go into this question, you mentioned tooling. I'm always intrigued. So what tooling do you see a lot of people using? Is it Excel? Do they use you use to work at RiskLens? Are they the tools that you see most people using in this space?
1: I think so. So Risk Lens, it's you know it's I think the oldest quant risk software. Um it's probably still the main one as far as I know. Um I see people using Excel. Um, we can we use we even use some Excel. So Excel, I think uh, Netflix provides a an open source library on GitHub for doing bear analyses. Uh, I assume they use that internally. Other organizations might be using that, but yeah, far and above, at least you know for quite a while, risk lens or people building some simple version in Excel. Excel is what it is uh, for better and worse. And um, yeah, I think there's some newer players in the space. I don't know how, much they have or haven't been adopted. I I don't know any organizations personally that use them, but I've been out of the consulting space for over a year now. So as far as what I know, at least when I was seeing what a lot of different organizations use, it it was Risk Lens or something that they built internally.
0: Yeah, it's interesting with the Excel one because it's like if you take like model risk management generally, like one of the biggest things is manipulating the model. <laughs> it's, oh. <right. laughs> and it's like Excel, yeah, it's really good. It gets you going, but that model can quite easily be manipulated to make sure that it gives the result you want. So you've moved on, you've got a tool, you've got an understanding of what you want to do. What are the practical steps to get going? Like, can you explain to me how you would get an organization up and running with FAIR? Uh,
1: Some of this will be a little redundant, but I'll I'll try and keep it in a prioritized order. First, establishing a use case for it, having buy-in from certainly an executive leader, head of security, whatnot, having that use case, specific use case that solves a problem, having your buy-in, coming in and talking, like I said, with some of the different teams to gather some of the data. I'll say this again, you need less data than you think you do and you have more data than you think you do whatever order you wanna put those two phrases in. And so gathering some of that information, incidents, the legal costs of a breach, How does the business make money and then just the various different controls that will likely come into play for more common scenarios such as if a threat actor got a foothold, if a a threat actor performed a web application attack. You know, just getting some information about the intention around how controls should be functioning or better yet, even some data around how controls, how those controls are actually functioning. Comprehensive red team exercises are invaluable. You can't put a value on that in terms of if you have information about a pen test where like a black box pen test threat actor on the outside, working their way onto your network, worming around and getting to assets. If you have anything like that, boy, what a treasure trove of information in terms of uh, on the control side of things. So again, practical steps, use case, buy-in, gather some information, and then focus doing fair analysis just on the use case, start there. And from there, other need will arise you can build other use cases around so every use case or work stream that we build here and i would do this in any place it's built around some kind of need or problem every time so knowing those needs gathering some information and then just doing analysis work on those needs the last thing i'll say too is it can be uncomfortable for a lot of people at first to do fair analyses because they're so focused you know on the actual numbers but Focus on the story of what a thing is. I really believe strongly that probably my primary role doing fair analysis is translating the story into the data that we have. And so when you're doing analysis work, getting the story right and calling out assumptions is really, really important. And I do think that is a critical step because you actually have to start doing analysis work and focus not on the numbers, but on getting the story right. because. If you have the right story, you know you can translate that into the numbers. But if you have the wrong story, regardless of what the numbers say, if those assumptions or that bad story gets called up when you're presenting results, it's not going to go very well.
0: So, moving back into your role more broadly, like
1: what are the biggest challenges you have? The first is probably cultural. It just takes time for people to adjust their thinking around all of the things fair, making business decisions rather than compliance decisions. That's one major cultural change. It's not comfortable for security people to sometimes grant exceptions because even though there's really maybe not a strong risk component to granting an exception, it still feels dangerous and bad. And so adjusting that thinking to really looking at risk And the security function as solving a a business need is a different way of thinking. So, that's the culture. That's one cultural piece that's hard to put it frankly. Some people can wield a lot of power in organizations, and they say that something is the way that it is, and therefore it is. When you bring in a FAIR program, it takes a lot of that power and authority out of one person and into a number of different people, particularly into data. And people can be really resistant to that because it takes away their authority. Uh, It can be a threat or feel like a threat to their, you know, the authority that they wield in terms of what they say is the way that it is. So that can be kind of tough, particularly if people who are resistant to it are directors or even other executives. That can be tough, honestly. So the cultural change is probably the biggest one. Resourcing, you know, every director wants more employees. You know, I would... I would love more people working on the cyber risk team. So resourcing, it's a struggle. It's no different than basically anyone else or any other role. We always want more, but it is tough, especially if you're a one person risk team, it can be a little isolating too, you know, in addition to being the person who has to do all of all of the work with help, of course. I think typically those are probably the hardest, the two hardest things, that cultural change and the resourcing element of it as well. Like I said, the the data gathering and some of those other things that organizations, I mean, I just met with another company last week who who was asking these same kinds of questions. And it was like, well, how do we get started with data and these kinds of things? And it's actually not as hard as you as one might think, you just need to know where to look. I think that's that's it.
0: One of the interesting things there is like a risk based approach to compliance that you you said there. That's a challenge, us. I also think that's a huge benefit because you don't end up in control for control's sake, where actually it's completely not needed set of controls. And you can explain why. You can say, actually, these controls have very little value to reducing the risk. They cost a lot of money. And we can say, actually, and we'll, we'll discuss that with the auditors, but we've got a valid reason and a model where we can show that is the case. And I think. That in itself promotes a, a much more sensible way of thinking. I know I think we spoke before, Like I've worked with organizations, done a lot of this work where they've done predetermined control requirements based on a set of questions around what that asset or system is doing. So they take, okay, we've got 450 control requirements for our organization, but we filter that down based on, okay, what's the service that we offer? Where is it hosted? What kind of data is on it? And it's kind of doing the same thing, isn't it, another way, but you're actually using this to determine what are the most critical controls for the risks perceived for what you're doing. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. So you're not doing control for control's sake.
1: Quick anecdote on that note. One of the most heartbreaking moments so far in my doing fair things was a, that an organization and a somebody on the business side came and wanted a fair analysis done to show how the I think there were like twenty nine or thirty different NIST controls that they had to implement for this brand new big shiny system that they built. How each one of them reduced risk, and the longest short of it is, I had to tell them that there were only three or four controls that we could say with any kind of justification that actually did anything, and you could hear a pin drop in the room. They had spent so much time and effort implementing all of these different NIST controls and documenting it and all of this stuff. And I basically had to say, sorry, most of those really, really don't matter. (laughs) Like they may serve some function for like compliance or whatever, but like in terms of reducing risk, like,
0: sorry. Yeah, I mean, you see it quite a lot where you've had this kind of evolution of compliance frameworks where you've had, we started with PCI as we do payment card. Then we had the person who wanted to be ISO 27001 certified. We've got a new person in who wants to do NIST. You end up with this like lump of controls. I'm going to say two, three, four, five hundred 500 controls. And it's always just like, you end up like looking at it going, can't get anything done. I've got friends who <laughs> work for <laughs> banks and other things. And they're just like, <laughs> you want to see the amount of control requirements that we need in order to do X, Y, and Z. And I think it is a big struggle for a lot of people to know like, what are the key controls? What do they mean to us? And like, obviously for compliance reasons, you have to do some, but, I think having a valid reason why you don't and why is obviously very helpful when you speak to your auditors. So flipping back to, I guess, a a slightly different subject is taking a look at the industry as a whole. What are your biggest areas of concern in 2023? Probably, I talked about a little bit
1: about this earlier, but a number of new companies emerging in the risk quantification space and not doing right by fair or quant risk in terms of trying to just get a little bit of information, get a bunch of maturity scores, and then magically in some black box that you can't actually or are allowed to see, spit out a whole bunch of risk information. And it looks good. It feels good. It tells you all the things you need to know. And there's just nothing there under the hood. It's a little bit like magical thinking around quant risk. So I think and I've seen a number of demos from different companies doing this, I think it really is a concern. It gives a false level of assurance about the right priorities. It gives a false level of understanding of risk or just a a false understanding of risk. And it, it equates again, maturity with efficacy, which they're not the same thing. So seeing that kind of thing emerge and playing on what everybody wants rather than you know the hard reality is really really concerning it's really concerning to me honestly i think it's not good for the industry it's really not good for organizations who try and do this because you can pretty much just count on the fact that using that bad information they're going to misprioritize they're going to make investments in the wrong places and so on and so forth they might look good doing it but it's not a very good practice it really concerns me change is hard, right? Change takes time, it takes effort, and eventually we move to a better spot. And what I see when a company is, say, creating a a product, a risk product that just takes maturity scores, that is just another form of resistance to change. Saying it's too hard, it's too, you know, we just need to use maturity scores. Change being hard is not any kind of reason to just misuse, say, maturity scores and call them efficacy when when it's not can't do that. So I think that honestly is probably my biggest concern. One of the benefits that I I see in 2023, though, is a lot of waking up to the benefits of risk quantification, a lot of creativity in the space. I mean, it's still a little bit like the wild west in terms of being able to contribute really meaningful ways of doing things how to build a quant risk program for example regulators waking up to you know the benefits of quant risk for compliance realm i think nist just called out there as you know like an essential risk function so there's a lot of good things happening in the space too um, but what comes with that of course is You know, organizations trying to capitalize on this in ways that don't have a lot of integrity.
0: So, we've just got two final questions to go through. So, I know we touched on it slightly earlier, but what are the skills you think that make a great uh, information security professional?
1: Critical thinking is a great one. The ability to be really technical, but then bring that back to just sort of high level context, I think is incredibly valuable. Being able to work at high and low levels. I think those are the two really important ones. There's a lot of focus in just engineering in general on being able to do a technical thing really, really, really well and really, really, really deep and be very, very specific. And I don't think there's quite as much emphasis on being able to give high level context to that. And I I think when I see security engineers have that mindset, being able to bring it back, I think they're really, really valuable. It's a really valuable trait or skill to have and to build.
0: Yeah, the big picture thinking and bringing it back to like something that people can relate to always helps, doesn't it? Because you can be like, this is a huge risk. But if you can't go, actually, this affects this system, which had this downtime, <laughs> then they go, oh, right, okay. I get it now. I need I need to look at this. So final question, if you could solve one problem in security, what would it be? I would, well, probably
1: just because it's so close to home at the Current moment, I just almost everywhere having security be able to not rely on compliance as the basis for its relationship with anybody in terms of what it does. I think that would be a, a great problem to get security out of the business of being police and in the business of providing a valuable service, which I think security does. But to be able to have a relationship that's based on on a, a more of a service mindset and a, a business mindset. I think that would be a great problem to solve.
0: Business enabler. Business enabler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You want business to be done securely and quickly, right? But you don't want to be sat there with, here's 55 compliance requirements you need to do. And here's our onboarding process for a vendor. It's like they're selling us some pens. Here's the onboarding process. Yeah, the, I guess the face that comes to mind is it's,
1: I use it in presentations sometimes, but there's that scene in the movie The Shining where where Jack is just staring out the window and he's just got like this blank face. And I always think of that as as being what uh what people in the business must think when they get handed a list of compliance requirements that they need to do.
0: Well this is even worse when they read it like the same thing's been written six times and you're like, yeah, because you've got six different regulations you need to adhere to and the like thanks so that's three more audits i need to do (laughs) you don't build a good relationship with them and it's always just like actually here's some more things you need to do it's like oh (laughs) but and they might need to do them but it's trying to make it as easy as possible rather than painful right Mm -hmm. i mean good reasons for it yep exactly i mean thanks tyler it's been a pleasure to have you on where can our listeners reach out to you is any anywhere that you uh want them to reach out to you from
1: Yeah, LinkedIn is always a great place to reach out. I check in on my LinkedIn once every couple of days or so. So if you message me or connect with me, I always like meeting new people. And I love chatting and answering questions and asking questions and hearing what other people are doing. And we can all connect and learn from each other. I'm really, really keen on that. Fantastic. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much.